This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. So attorneys for the accused shooter, Anderson Lee Aldrich, say in new court filings tonight that the suspect now identifies as non-binary. In a footnote to a motion asserting legal privileges, the public defenders say, quote, Anderson Aldrich is non-binary. They use they, them pronouns. And for the purposes of all formal filings, will be addressed as Mix Aldrich. So in other words, not Mr. or Ms. Joining me now, CNN political commentator Errol Lewis, also back with me, Al Franken and Joe Walsh. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, that's not anything that we had heard from his background. You know, people have been looking into his background. And uh, I don't know if anybody here, are you guys lawyers? I no. mean, you know, I don't know if, the, I, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, that, that's what he's now saying. That's CNN's Allison Camerata, surprised by the news that the attorneys for the suspect in the Colorado Springs LGBTQ club shooting identifies as non-binary. Well, right after that news came out, the other side, the side that had been on the defense, that is those who were being blamed, social conservatives, they pounced right back on the narrative. Two competing narratives and both sides are pouncing. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Many in the media have stated that Colorado Springs is a hotbed of fundamentalism. Do we know if that played a role in this shooting? There are very few things that we know, K-N-O-W, about this shooting at this point. And I've been watching the coverage looking for that favorite journalism F-word, which is fundamentalist. And I haven't seen it used often, but in one of the major stories that's going to be seen by a lot of people, because it was put out by USA Today, and thus it went out to all of the nation's Gannett newspapers, we have a classic example of a misuse of fundamentalist on several different levels. Listeners also need to understand they're connecting this shooting, among other things, to the Colorado Amendment, Amendment 2, back in the early 90s, which was later overruled by the U.S. Supreme Court in an important decision. And Colorado approved a amendment to the state constitution forbidding local cities and communities inside Colorado from passing anti-discrimination laws to protect LGBTQ people. I know a lot about that situation because I was still in Colorado at that time. I had already left the Rocky Mountain News newsroom and I was teaching at Denver Theological Seminary, but I was still writing my column and I still was kind of researching the background for some of the major stories in the state. And I did that in the months leading up to Amendment 2. So I know a lot about the coalition that produced Amendment 2. And then I know a lot about the coalition that voted for Amendment 2. And those are very different things. And I'll be glad to describe that if you're interested. It, it's, it's a complexity that is not being reflected in the news stories about this tragedy in Colorado Springs now. If you're going to make a reference to Amendment 2 
and you're going to say that Amendment 2 was an example of, quote, fundamentalist, unquote, clout in Colorado Springs and in Colorado, you owe your readers an accurate description of who supported Amendment 2 and who were the groups that helped lead to it, that led to the creation of that amendment, and who drafted it. Now, the New York Times accurately refers to it as the product of an evangelical effort. And that's true at the level of the drafting of the amendment. It's not true at the level of who supported the amendment, and most importantly, who voted for it. And, all, and maybe that's too much to ask the media these days to be accurate on situations like that. But if you're going to use language like we see in the USA Today story, you need to know what you're talking about. Let me give you an example. This is in the USA Today story. Most notably, in 1992, religious fundamentalist from Colorado Springs wrote Amendment 2, a measure seeking to amend Colorado's Constitution by making it illegal to ban discrimination based on sexual orientation. The measure was approved by Colorado voters that November, earning Colorado the nickname of the hate state. And the word fundamentalist is then yeah, is then used to describe Focus on the Family. The city is, is present tense, also the headquarters of Focus on the Family, a fundamentalist Protestant organization whose founder, James Dobson, is known for his stances against gay and trans rights. He's known for a lot of things, but his defense of traditional doctrines of sexuality and marriage was certainly a part of that picture. It's accurate to say, as the New York Times says, that an evangelical coalition wrote that amendment. It is not accurate to say that it was a fundamentalist coalition. There were a lot of groups involved in the writing of that amendment that cannot accurately be described as fundamentalist, especially under the terms used in the Associated Press Manual of Style that is supposed to be guiding coverage of main, in mainstream publications. The style book reference for fundamentalist for years has said, and if it's changed, I have not been told it has, and it's not in a recent copy of the style book that I own. Fundamentalist, the word gained usage in the early 20th century fundamentalist modernist controversy within Protestantism. Jumping down a bit, however, fundamentalism, fundamentalist has to a large extent taken on pejorative connotations, except when applied to groups that stress strict literal interpretations of scripture and separation from other Christians. In general, do not use fundamentalist unless a group applies the word to itself. For example, Bob Jones University has always, you know, freely adopted the use of the word fundamentalist to describe itself, and Liberty University for a long time did as well. A lot of other groups involved in this story are simply stated evangelicals. They are not fundamentalist, and it is certainly not fundamentalist to try to defend 2,000 years of teaching about the nature of marriage and the nature of gender and sexual orientation. Now, you can disagree with it. Fine. These stories must include accurate information and voices from people who disagree with those teachings. That's a part of the story, and it must be there. But there also must be accurate descriptions of who the people are 
in Colorado Springs, in Colorado and elsewhere, who supported, not the same thing as writing it, supported Amendment 2 and why they did so, and thus whether there is some sort of hate cloud over the state of Colorado that in some way affected this story. Another long, mattingly explanation, but I hope that was helpful. You have already pointed out the USA Today was pretty egregious. What else was, I'm using your adjective here, terrible about USA Today's coverage of this? Well, once you've gone ahead and assumed that there is a hate cloud in Colorado that has something relevant to do with this story, and you in fact have used that lens to frame the entire report, the headline is Colorado Springs worked to change its anti-gay image then its sole LGBTQ nightclub was targeted. So Colorado Springs, this is accurate, has worked hard to say there's more to our city than all of these evangelical groups. I'll always remember, I was in the newsroom at the Rocky Mountain News. May that newspaper rest in peace. I was in that newsroom one day working at my desk and someone from the business desk walked over to me with a printout from the Associated Press Wire, and it was the announcement that Focus on the Family was moving to Colorado Springs. And the business desk asked me, do you think this, this story is worth a brief? Which is newsroom for a short story in a column of little things happening in the state. And I did not literally fall out of my chair, but I assure you that literally my jaw dropped. I had been covering lots and lots of stories about evangelical groups moving to Colorado Springs, and even, boy, do I wish I had copyrighted the term I used in a column where I referred to Colorado Springs as Wheaton of the West. And you had the bumper stickers later, you know, will the last group to leave Wheaton turn out the lights, meaning to come to Colorado Springs. I told the copy desk that that was not just a story, that was a page one banner headline, and that when you looked back on the history of Colorado Springs and the history of Colorado in the 1980s and 90s, that would end up being one of the most important stories of the decade, very sure, the year. And frankly, I was right about that. But Colorado Springs has at least a dozen and maybe as many as 20 Christian organizations now based there, and that's a powerful impact on the community. The community is also a hotbed, if you know Colorado, of a kind of large L libertarianism and kind of Wild West approach to politics, which is frankly the dominant political viewpoint in Colorado, is not pure liberalism, but it's it's more of a leave us alone libertarianism, which tends to affect moral and social issues, as if it was liberalism. So it's a complex state. Colorado Springs is a complex place, and certainly the evangelical conservatism found in that city is a major force in that civic life. It is not the only one, however, and you using the word pounced was perfect. This was an example of the media pouncing for some sort of hate cloud atmosphere 
that at this point has not been proven has anything to do with this story. As we've had, tragically, other massacres in the past in Florida and elsewhere where it was automatically assumed that we knew the motives of the shooter and we knew why they ended up in a particular place at a different time, and the reality turned out to be more complex than in the pouncing headlines at the start of the whole story. This morning, it breaks out of the local news, by the way, there in Colorado, that the suspect here in the shooting identifies as non-binary. That's what his lawyer has put forth in a unrelated filing, and that he has the preferred pronouns of they and them, and uh, that's how he's going to be referred to in all official filings. And then there was some pouncing from the other side <laughs> on this. And tr- uh, rather than look for facts, either side is trying to dismantle the other's narrative here. Now, what are some basic questions? If we want to find out, is this young man religiously motivated to do violence to LGBTQ people? What could be some basic questions that a reporter might just want to maybe ask around about? Well, First of all, you had pouncing in both directions. You had people on the cultural right pouncing toward this identification, watching major media like uh, on CNN, the best example, squirming with this. You had a the CNN anchor when she, I guess her pronouns are she, said this with this kind of stunned look on her face when she reported this and then turned to the panel said, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, that's not anything that we have heard about his background. People have been looking into his background, desperately you know, looking around. She then goes, are you guys lawyers? I mean, I know I don't know what to say about it. That's what he's now saying, he again. And a CNN political commentator then stressed that this looked like the lawyer might be preparing for a defense against hate crimes charges linked to this shooting. And let me be the first to say that, yeah, that's a logical assumption. It is one that at this point remains totally unproven. And I guarantee you that every possible social media message and moment in this young person's life is now being investigated. I think something that needs to be addressed, and we haven't seen some other media such as the New York Times and I have it, if I've missed something in USA Today, I hope listeners will let us know. I don't see a lot of other people jumping on this. The New York Post, once again, a libertarian slash conservative newspaper, immediately wrote about the lawyer's statement. And at this point, it is a fact that the lawyers have stated this. It is not a fact that we know this to be true about this young person, Anderson Aldrich. If you get my distinction there, and we have lots of people, I'm sure, attempting to investigate, like I said, his background. Now, what's interesting about the New York Post story is the background of this. He comes from an incredibly stressed and confused family. The estranged father of Aldrich is an ex-con former MMA fighter who evolved into a porn star. 
And once again, this appears to be facts. It's been proven he had 21 victories and 10 years of a fighting career. We even know the inappropriate names of some of the movies in which he starred, some of the porn flicks. I think it's safe to say that this was not a home in which the father and the family donated a lot of money to focus on the family. Now, if there is some bizarre earlier chapter, I guarantee you that it will be found by the New York Times, CNN, and others. This guy's background is going to be gone over with a fine-tooth comb unless evidence quickly emerges this person is non-binary and that he has had a confused sexual orientation and gender background, that he may have been a patron at this club. I assume there are security films that will show us whether this person has made visits to this club in the past. All of that will emerge, I believe, unless that whole angle of the story simply vanishes, as it kind of has in some previous stories of this kind. But meanwhile, it is interesting to see. Uh, are you familiar with the term dead name? I am. Yeah, the noun dead naming, you can use it as a verb as well, is when you take a queer or bisexual or trans or non-binary person and you refer to this person by their previously known gender. That's called dead naming someone. And suffice it to say, CNN tends to be careful about dead naming celebrities and others who have changed their orientation or have declared themselves non-binary. So that's interesting that in that CNN report, no attempt was made to use this person's newly or old stated, we don't know yet, pronouns. This will be something else that I guarantee you, speaking of pouncing, people on the right will be watching like crazy to see how the media handles that. They will pounce on that. Meanwhile, it will be interesting to see if the media pounces backwards, jumps backwards on its policies about dead naming in this particular case. So, Terry, in addition to the questions that you have just mentioned here, should journalists be asking questions on the other side, that is, a possible connection to social conservatism, Christianity, and James Dobson, like, did he go to church or does he have a James Dobson book on his shelf? Well, yeah, and the way I used to describe it when I was teaching at Denver Seminary, I used to tell ministers they needed to learn to ask some rather basic questions about the people they were trying to reach for their church. And the questions I came up with, it was Terry Mattingly's definition of discipleship. You've heard me use this before. Three questions. How do they spend their time? How do they spend their money? And how do they make their decisions? Those are also excellent questions for reporters when they're involved in covering something tragic like this particular case. And suffice it to say, I assume we will know a lot about the life of this person, where this person went to school. We will find out whether there are any church ties there that, like, this person used to be an evangelical, and then his family 
walked away from that. His dad goes crazy off into all these other activities. And thus, some case might be made that Aldrich is haunted by his Christian past and is a, here's the big phrase, a self-hating LGBTQ person. I expect that will be researched rather carefully. So yeah, it's totally valid to ask questions about his life. I mentioned we can expect people to go over with a fine-tooth comb his background in terms of social media, whether he's ever taken any particular political stands. All of that will get covered. So let's talk a little bit about the months leading up to Colorado's Amendment 2 vote that you discussed earlier. Well, yeah, I mean, if Colorado and Colorado Springs is going to be an important part of this story, folks need to try to figure out that crucial chapter in the history of the state. So let me flash back there. When the amendment was first being circulated, before it was voted on, I tried to run down who wrote this language. And in particular, because I have a background in church-state studies, I was fascinated in the use of the word discriminate, that laws against discrimination or laws that communities pass in order to discriminate in favor of LGBTQ people. The word discriminate has a legal sense, and people discriminate all the time. I mean, when you go to a store to buy a suit, they discriminate based on your size. Now, that's a trivial use, but the term discrimination has very strict legal meaning. At the same time, it's a term that gets used in everyday speech in a much broader sense. As I began running down the history of this amendment, there were a lot of people who were upset with the Evangelical Coalition who drew this up because they used the word discrimination and discriminate in the amendment when there were other words that could have accurately described what they were trying to do. Suffice it to say, one of the main goals here was to prevent some communities in the state of Colorado from passing strong legislation to protect LGBTQ people while simultaneously thus seeking to discriminate against, what do you know, people like cake shop bakers, florists, churches, etc., who might want the right to discriminate on the basis of sexual conduct orientation, personality, etc. Once again, a complex issue and one the U.S. Supreme Court has not ruled on fully at this point. They've made some very important decisions backing the cultural left, but they still haven't given us a definitive answer on the most crucial question and one that's at the heart of these discussions of Amendment 2. So who was upset with the evangelicals who drafted the amendment. Suffice it to say, I talked with people among conservative Jewish groups and also conservative Catholic groups, two groups that have excellent legal teams. And I'm not using stereotypes there. That's just a simple statement of fact. If you are looking for liberal or conservatives on church-state issues, you immediately look to the Jewish community on the left and the right, Catholic lawyers on the left and the right, and also Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints lawyers. 
predominantly on the right, but now on kind of the center left, according to some folks. These people were very upset that they were not consulted on the drafting of this amendment, because even if the amendment passed, they suspected it would immediately be overturned by a high court, all the way to the Supreme Court, as it turned out, because the language that evangelical lawyers had used in drafting it wasn't terribly precise. Now, the amendment did pass, and I think as someone who lived in Colorado and watched the ads on my television night after night after night about Amendment 2, I think it is safe to say that one particular set of ads got that amendment passed, and it shocked the press in Colorado when that amendment passed, and it passed easily. And what they were especially stunned by was that it was overwhelmingly supported by African Americans and Hispanics. And in the weeks before the vote, at the last moment, and this was strategic and smart if you were pro-Amendment 2, they ran ads that simply quoted black and Hispanic Coloradans saying, I really don't want to discriminate against gays and lesbians, but I just don't believe that sexual orientation is the same thing as race. I don't believe that sexual orientation has been proven to be the same thing as skin color and racial and ethnic backgrounds. And I don't have any question at all that those were the ads that led to the passage of Amendment 2. Now, is that an issue of fundamentalist Christianity? I would say not. A lot of those Latino and African-American voters were churchgoers, and some of them probably weren't churchgoers. But the discussion of Amendment 2 and what it says about the state of Colorado, if you're going to get into it, you need to look, once again, let me repeat it, at three different things. Who drafted Amendment 2? Second, what groups endorsed and supported Amendment 2? Even if they were not crazy in favor of the language that it used, who backed it? I think you would find Catholic groups did. I think you would find some conservative Jewish groups and some other religious groups that do not deserve to be labeled by Gannett and USA Today as fundamentalists. Backed it. The third question is who voted for Amendment 2 and what does its passage say about the state of Colorado? And if you do that, you're going to get into a really complex beehive of issues related to politics, race, religion, sexual orientation, etc. And it's that exact equation, race equals gender slash sexual orientation, is the issue that, frankly, the U.S. Supreme Court continues to punt on settling that issue. Justice Kennedy himself said, you know, someday the court's going to have to rule on this, but it's not today, as he wrote you know, one of his final decisions, I believe it was a Birchfell, and then backed out of that discussion. Once again, another confusing answer, but it's a confusing question, and it certainly does not deserve the kind of one-paragraph slam job that we saw in that USA Today story. Finally, with only a minute here, why do so many reporters 
answer the why question almost at the same time as reporting on the answers to the who, what, where, when, and how? Well, it's a part of the formula, and they're supposed to be seeking that. But sometimes the why question just doesn't get answered easily. We still, to this day, do not know why the gunman in the Las Vegas massacre did what he did. I mean, how many people were killed in that massacre? I believe it was a dozen or two dozen. The number does not leap to mind. But it was a terrible massacre, and we still don't know the why question in that case. Why did the Pulse massacre occur? We know a lot more about it now than we knew about it in the first two to three days after the massacre. So I would urge our listeners, be careful. Be careful reading publications on the right. Be careful reading those on the left. And take your time trying to figure out why this tragedy happened. And frankly, I wouldn't trust people on either side who think they already know. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the Weekly on Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.